I notice that the things I own, which mean the most to me, are items of sentimental or nostalgic value. So, for example, I care about my vintage Nintendo game collection, and I care about things relating to my children. Human beings have an interesting relationship to certain kinds of objects. Imagine you were given the option of having an old acoustic guitar that belonged to Kurt Cobain when he was a young musician writing songs for Nirvana. The guitar is in pretty bad shape, as Cobain had it for a long time, and it's been in storage in Seattle, near where he used to live and make music. Or, you could have the exact same make and model of guitar in perfect brand new condition. This alternative guitar is in a music shop in Baltimore. Which one do you want? Obviously, you want Kurt Cobain's guitar. It's not a close call. It's an obvious choice. Why? You might think that it's because of the cash value. Of course, the first guitar is worth a ton of money, maybe $100,000, if it can be proven authentic. The other one is probably available for two or three hundred bucks. But that doesn't really answer the question. Why is it worth so much money? Because that is what somebody would be willing to pay for it. I know, but why? Furthermore, even if it weren't worth more, if you would never sell it anyway, if it were just for you, wouldn't you rather play Kurt Cobain's guitar than some other guitar? How about a picture that your child drew for you when she was little? Suppose it's the only one you still have around. It isn't worth any money, but it certainly has value to you. Why? This kind of sentimentality is not just a peculiarity of human psychology, either. Elephants return to the bones of their lost family members. They handle the bones and seem to have a real emotional attachment to them. They aren't communing with random bones they find or with other objects they find lying around. Apparently, their dead loved ones still matter to them, just as ours do to us. Human beings keep antiques and relics around and treat them as extremely special and valuable, even magical, and the truth of these objects is paramount to their value. The bones of an early Christian martyr kept in a reliquary in some church in Europe are important to anthropologists and religious devotees specifically because they are believed to be real, to really be the bones of that martyr. If they were discovered to be a fraud, they would lose their value. Think of a real painting by Vincent van Gogh versus a clever reproduction. The reproduction is worthless, while the original might be worth millions. We don't care that the reproduction might have been accomplished by an artist that was just as good. The fraud was painted much later, or by someone who we do not hold in special esteem. What I've been getting at is a kind of emergent value. The object is valued much more than its parts. It matters where the object has been, who owned it, how old it is, and so on. Commodities like oil and gold and pork bellies don't have this emergent quality. Their worth is a strictly economic one. If they're in short supply, they're worth more money. If the supply is plentiful, the value goes down. You might buy a few ounces of gold now and sell it in a year or two when the value has gone up. But imagine a gold bracelet found at a Viking burial site. It's clearly worth more than its weight in gold. Today I want to talk about the idea of emergence with regard to theories of consciousness. Is consciousness a fundamental phenomenon or an emergent one? Put simply, consciousness is the fact of it being like something to be. Obviously, it is like something to be you or me. Human beings are the only ones we know of who have told us they are conscious and attempted to convey to us what it is like to be them in poetry and literature and music and philosophy and in religious expression. But that gives us no evidence against consciousness in other creatures or even other objects. I'm willing to bet the elephants are conscious when they reverently commune with their ancestral bones. But there are those that argue that the bones are conscious too, and I'm quite skeptical of that. In Neurophilosophy, Patricia Churchland writes, quote, The reducibility of one property to another, 
depends on whether the theory that characterizes the property at issue reduces to the theory that characterizes the other. To put the matter informally, if a property of one theory has causal powers that are not equal or comprehended by any property in the second, more basic theory, then the property is considered to be emergent with respect to the second theory." Unquote. In my opinion, the conscious mind is an emergent property because the particular arrangement of neuronal elements produces an integrated structure of causal relationships that together do something altogether new that is not the sum of the neurons or their activities. I claim that something above and beyond the cellular level emerges, at least upon the architecture of the human thalamic cortex. Churchland continues, quote, One cannot tell simply by inspecting a property whether or not it is emergent with respect to some other property, despite the conviction displayed by the occasional theorist lost in introspective reverie. Nor, of course, do common-sense intuitions that two properties are substantially or even stunningly different entail anything about whether future inter-theoretic reduction might actually identify the two. Light may seem completely different from electromagnetic radiation, yet it turns out to be electromagnetic radiation. Having a high temperature seems supremely different from having a high mean molecular kinetic energy, yet it turns out that high temperature in a gas is high mean kinetic energy of the constituent molecules. Notice also that one does not provide independent evidence for the irreducibility of one property to another merely by claiming that the first is emergent relative to the second. That would be like saying of a property that it is irreducible because it is irreducible." Unquote. So the conscious mind of the human brain is either emergent or reducible to more fundamental properties. This implies that panpsychism is the most reductionist argument you can have with regard to consciousness. According to panpsychism, consciousness is a basic property of something ubiquitous and fundamental, say matter or energy. If consciousness is a property like mass or charge, then human consciousness must be reducible to its material substrate. The problem that comes up for panpsychist theories of consciousness is the so-called combination problem. In her book Conscious, Annika Harris says, quote, Though many people wonder, if the most basic constituents of matter have some level of conscious experience, how could it be that when they form a more complex physical object or system, those smaller points of consciousness combine to create a new, more complex sphere of consciousness? For instance, if all the individual atoms and cells in my brain are conscious, how do those separate spheres of consciousness merge to form the consciousness I'm experiencing? What's more, do all the smaller individual points of consciousness cease to exist after giving birth to an entirely new point of consciousness? This is referred to as the combination problem, which the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy describes as the hardest problem facing panpsychism, noting, the problem is that this is very difficult to make sense of. Little conscious subjects of experience with their micro-experiences coming together to form a big conscious subject with its own experiences. The idea of many minds forming some other mind is much harder to get your head around, so to speak. For many scientists and philosophers, the combination problem presents the biggest obstacle to accepting any description of reality that includes consciousness as a widespread feature. However, the obstacle we face here once again seems to be a case of confusing consciousness with the concept of self, as philosophers and scientists tend to think in terms of a subject of consciousness." Unquote. That passage provides a good introduction to the combination problem. Harris turns out to be quite sympathetic to panpsychism, at least partially on the grounds that the self is illusory and so the combination problem isn't much of a problem after all. She referred here to the confusion of consciousness with the concept of self. On a few previous occasions, I've pointed out that there are two different senses of self which we can distinguish. The first sense is the self-concept, which probably is an illusion. 
This is the one which can be transcended by high-dose psychedelic experiences. One can therefore experience consciousness in the absence of self-identity. But importantly, the other sense of self is subjectivity, the point of view. Even on the high-dose psychedelic trip, an experience is being had. Conscious content is occurring. The conscious mind exists. Thus, the selfish point of view is undeniable. Having such a trip, you might not identify with any person or thing, but you are having a conscious experience. And another conscious mind, that of your friend or your neighbor, is not having that experience with you. Like any other specific subjective experience, it exists only from your point of view. Therefore, I contend that the combination problem applies. But that does not mean that some form of panpsychism is necessarily wrong. The question is, is consciousness a fundamental phenomenon or an emergent one? I think these opposing views can be illustrated rather simply using some basic geometry. Consider for starters a line segment, a line which is five units long. It doesn't matter whether it is five inches or five miles or five light years, whatever. The line is five units in length. It has only one dimension, length. Let's allow that this little line is a fundamental thing, like an atom is fundamental. Now imagine that we have a group of four identical lines, each five units long. There they are, four fundamental things, each having one dimension of property, just length. No width, no depth, just length. But of course we can arrange the four lines together to form a square. Observe that we now have a two-dimensional figure. A new property has now emerged out of nowhere, the property of area. Area is a property of some two-dimensional figures. Our figure has an area of 25 square units. This number 25 is related to the length of the lines we started with. Specifically, each of our lines is the square root of the area. 5 times 5 equals 25. Notice that the area is an abstraction, not a fundamental thing. The area is real, but it is not material. It isn't made out of anything. We only have the constituents that we started with, the four lines. No new thing has emerged, but a real property has. And this new property is not guaranteed just because we have added parts together. We could have combined the lines in various other ways. We could have lined them all up in parallel. We could have made two plus signs. Neither of those arrangements would have generated an area. We could have made a rhombus, and that would have the area property, but it would have a different area than the square. We could have made a triangle using three of the lines and left the other line off by itself. In that case, the triangle would have an area. The area is only a concept, perhaps, but it is discoverable and quantifiable. It has real mathematical meaning. If the four lines that we started with are like atoms, then the square is like a molecule. The atoms can form different molecules which have different properties. And this is the important point. Those new properties are not simply the sum of the fundamental properties. The properties of H2O are not the properties of two hydrogen atoms added to those of one oxygen atom. Just as the area of our square is related in an important way to the length of the lines out of which we built it, the relationship is not arbitrary. The relationship is real and has real emergent properties. Area for our square is a two-dimensional property of how we arrange the one-dimensional objects, the lines. And the area of our square is not the sum of the four lengths of our square. This is to say that the arrangement as a square specifies more information than the combination of four lines. It is something more than additive. What happened to the fundamental property, the length of each line? That is still there. We can add them together to get the perimeter of the square. The perimeter is a real concept, but it differs from the area in that it is made out of the lines. It is material. Since we have the additive property, perimeter, and an emergent property, area, we have more than the combination of fundamental parts. To extend our illustration, let's add one more dimension. 
We can do this by simply adding more lines or by adding more squares. A set of squares could be configured to make a cube. The cube has a new property, a three-dimensional property known as volume. It is expressed in units cubed. For this set of squares, the volume is 5 times 5 times 5, which is 125 cubic units. A cube, as we know from playing games of chance, has six sides. That is, it has six squares in a particular configuration. Now that we have a volume of 125 cubic units, what happened to the areas? Are they lost when we build the cube? Nope. Add up the areas and you get the surface area of the cube. 25 times 6 equals 150 square units. You see, we have the combination of starting properties and new emergent properties. Knowing the number of lines or the number of atoms tells us nothing about their arrangement. They can be configured into hundreds of different arrangements, and the emergent properties are those which are not a function of combination. This illustration might not be perfect as an analogy to the conscious mind, but I think it does some lifting. It provides a framework for discussing the dispute between combination and emergence. It is clear from the geometry example that both things occur as we build up a structure. We have combination as we add the parts together, and we have emergence as higher dimensional structures are built. Suppose that the human mind is like the volume property, that is, it only exists as an emergent property of a higher dimensional organization. For the sake of simplicity, we are only talking about three levels of dimensionality here. I'm not making any special claims about these spatial dimensions. This is only an analogy. So here, the brain is composed of a bunch of material lines, and the volume is consciousness. If that is the case, then without volume, there is no consciousness. Consciousness, according to this argument, is exclusively an emergent property. I think there is compelling evidence for this. For the panpsychist, consciousness would obtain in each line, all by itself. But we know that the human mind is unified and compositional, so the panpsychist must argue that a square is conscious and that a cube is conscious. Either there are many conscious subjects, one for each line, plus one for each square, plus one for the whole cube, or the construction of a square forms a conscious subject which replaces that of the lines, and then the construction of a cube creates a conscious subject which replaces that of the squares. Both arguments, as far as I can tell, have been proposed by theorists. For example, Giulio Tononi and his colleagues in the Integrated Information Theory, IIT camp, make an argument in favor of the latter kind of panpsychism. Integrated information is identical to consciousness in their opinion. Since the fundamental lines are not integrated, they would not have consciousness. In our analogy to geometry, the square would have consciousness. The consciousness would be analogous to area, a new informational property. In that sense, IIT is emergentist. But for IIT, once the squares integrate to form a cube, if the cube is the higher integrated structure, then only the cube is conscious. Now consciousness for the structure is the volume, and not the area. I find this thinking difficult to justify. In molecular biology, the molecule has properties that are novel compared to the atoms that make it, but the atoms are still present. They still follow the physical rules of atoms. The atoms have not disappeared in the making of the molecule. Likewise, I don't see that if the areas of the squares are instances of conscious being, then combining them into cubes with volume would destroy them as individuals. Why? Think about a violent mob. The individual people that make up the crowd do not cease to exist or to think or to feel once they have accumulated into a throng. Of course, the dynamics of a mob are emergent with regard to the dynamics of the individuals. New destructive behaviors can emerge and be very dangerous, but no one in law or psychology could say that the individuals cease to be and thus are not accountable for their actions. The trouble is, we conscious human beings are a high-level phenomenon. 
we are like the volume of the cube and we are theorizing about ourselves. We know that volume is conscious, but we have no way of determining at this point whether area or lines or squares or anything else is conscious. Perhaps they are, and perhaps they are not. Perhaps what it is like to be an area rather than a volume is so utterly different from the mind as we know it that we cannot even imagine it, but it could still be like something to be such a property. I will now present to you why I favor an exclusively emergent account for consciousness. I have had many occasions to describe my theoretical framework to you. It's called the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, or TICL, and it holds that consciousness like ours is a structure of cause and effect which is integrated in time. According to the theory, there are two sides of the coin of consciousness, the point of view and the contents. One cannot exist without the other. So how are they related? The point of view comes from a very large system of integrated causality, which occurs in the brain's thalamocortical system during states of sentience. This whole brain system is integrated over some period of time, say half a second, with every one of its parts, its neuronal elements, having both cause and effect within the system. The contents are subsets of the whole system. I call them subsystems. These are sets of neurons, maybe a few, maybe thousands, that together express a higher level of temporally integrated causality than the amount for the whole system. The integrated causality of each subsystem is experienced by the integrated causality of the whole system. The whole experiences the parts within it which differentiate themselves. The resulting contents in consciousness have particular meaning from the point of view of the system. Since my framework requires both a point of view and contents in order to be conscious, simple fundamental material things do not satisfy. So I conclude that atoms and cells and trees and rocks are not conscious things. It is not like anything at all to be such materials. They are not even integrated structures. What if they were? According to IIT, a simple circuit might be conscious on some low level. I'm not having it. There must be both an integrated structure to produce a point of view and an even more integrated substructure for the point of view to experience. Put simply, my reasoning is this. One, I am conscious when I am awake or dreaming, but not when I am in deep sleep or under general anesthesia. Two, the thalamocortex contains the substrate for my consciousness. It behaves differently during conscious states compared to non-conscious states. Three, that difference is critical to my being conscious. Four, that difference comes down to the level of global integration of function. Five, if the whole global system is maximally integrated as occurs in a widespread seizure, I will lose consciousness. And six, local integration can still be high during states where I am not conscious. The most parsimonious explanation for me for these facts is that in order to exhibit consciousness, the global thalamocortical system must be integrated and component parts of the system must be even more integrated in order to be experienced. This gets us to a framework for consciousness that solves the binding problem, altogether avoids the combination problem, and it explains why the contents of consciousness have coherent meaning and why so much of what the cortex is doing is not conscious. The reason for that limitation is that the integration that would produce the content is not sufficiently high to distinguish it from background noise. What about panpsychism? Well, as I said, we are the conscious beings that emerge at a high level, like the volume that emerges only in figures of the third dimension. I can't rule out that consciousness could emerge at a lower level, like that of the square. But if it does, it should only have access to the contents which emerge within it from an even lower level. After all, I cannot see myself. My mind cannot find itself, and it cannot find you. 
I am a point of view upon contents, and I cannot be a point of view upon a point of view. I will forever be alone with the contents that appear within me. They are shadows in my mind, cast by the features of the real world, and from the shadows I can only make inferences to objective nature. My thoughts and feelings, the things I perceive, exist only to me. Not only are they valuable in themselves, my contents of consciousness, but without them nothing in the world can have any value either.